Most of you know Glenn Charlton, and uh, it was both my privilege and my grief to take the Charlton family to the airport a couple weeks ago as they were leaving Brazil for about seven-month furlough back in Switzerland and Ireland. And on that trip, as we were driving to, to Guarulhos, Glenn said to me, he, he turned to me and he said, you know, Nathaniel, I haven't seen you sprint very often. And he said, I'm kind of looking forward to watching you sprint to the end of Acts because you have a lot to cover in a very short amount of time. If you're looking at the pages of your Bible in Acts, you'll notice that today we're going to be skipping some content and moving ahead. We're not going to be examining in depth Paul's ministry in the city of Corinth. I alluded to it last week when we were looking at Paul in Athens, but the main thing that I would like for you to know about Paul in Corinth was this. First of all, as I told you last week, Corinth was a city known for its sensual idolatry, meaning it was, um, it was known for its sexual immorality of all kinds, and sexual immorality often associated with different forms of pagan worship in different pagan temples. So that was what, in fact, the term to Corinthianize in the ancient world meant to corrupt sexually. So uh, that gives you an idea of for what the city of Corinth was known. Secondly, I want you to know that Paul, a very influential church, it was also a church with a lot of problems. How do we know it had a lot of problems? Because Paul wrote at least two letters to them which have been preserved for us in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And if you read those letters, you can see all the issues that Paul was helping the Corinthian church deal with. Now, also in Corinth, Paul becomes very frustrated with the hard hearts of the Jews. So frustrated that he leaves the synagogue. And as he leaves the synagogue, he states, from now on, I will go only to the Gentiles in Corinth. So today, we're, we're moving with Paul from Corinth to see what God has for us from Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. So, recent history. Paul has visited Athens, the city known for its idolatry of philosophy and dialectic. Corinth, as I just mentioned, known for its sensual idolatry. And now today in Ephesus, a city known for its idolatry of the magic arts and sorcery. That is for what Ephesus was known. Now, many of you are parents, uh, and if you're not a parent, then uh, you can definitely imagine what happens when a parent promises a young child something good, but that's coming later. For instance, yes, son, later today we will go get ice cream. Does that child allow you to forget your promise? No, absolutely not. Quite the opposite. There is a constant reminder. Are we getting ice cream yet? No. Are we getting ice cream yet? No. Are we getting ice cream yet? No. When are we getting it? Later. When is later? Later is later. But how later is later? Soon. Well, what does soon? Soon for adults means something different than soon for children. So they will not let you forget that promise. For some reason, the church, or maybe I should say more appropriately, the evangelical church, 
we so often seem to forget the work and presence of the Holy Spirit. But all through Acts, it is though Luke is determined to keep the Holy Spirit's work front and center. He does not allow us to forget that all that's happening in the early years of the church is a direct result of the work and presence of the Holy Spirit of God. If you recall, on the very first day that we began the study of the book of Acts, I shared with you that though Acts is known as the Acts of the Apostles, then a much more accurate title would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. For it is the Holy Spirit who works to sustain and live and act and be present in the life of the church. So this morning, we are going to note five works of the Holy Spirit to which Luke draws our attention through Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. Now again, remember, Luke is not allowing us to forget. He's like that child saying, don't forget the Holy Spirit, don't forget the Holy Spirit, don't forget the Holy Spirit. So I'll be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 19, beginning with verse 1 through verse 22. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. 
many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery through their scrolls brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. The first act of the Holy Spirit in Ephesus through Paul's ministry is a reminder to us. It is that the Holy Spirit confirms and seals salvation. The story here in Ephesus begins with an odd account of people of whom Luke refers to as disciples. So there is that word, disciples, by the way, every time Luke uses it, it is referring to believers. But at the same time, they didn't have a complete understanding of salvation. Something was lacking because Paul asks them directly, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they're like, um, we don't even know that there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit. Let alone have we received his indwelling or his baptism. From there, then Paul asked them the next logical question. Well, what baptism did you receive? And they answered that they had received only the baptism of John. Now, I know this can seem all kind of complicated. But if we go back to the beginning of Gospel of Mark... We'll recall that John's baptism was specifically a baptism of repentance. When John the Baptist was at the Jordan River in the wilderness and he's baptizing people in Mark 1, he specifically says that he is preparing the way for the Lord. So the Messiah had not yet come. The Savior had not yet come. John's work was to prepare the way for that Messiah. Prepare the way for Jesus through repentance. So John's baptism was a baptism of expectation. It was one of looking forward. But baptism into the name of Jesus is a baptism of fulfillment. Because the Messiah has already come. He's already here. Baptism is a sign. It's a sign that reflects an inner, invisible reality. What is that reality? The death and burial of the sinful nature and the resurrection of a new person to eternal life. That's the image of baptism. That's why when we practice it, the person goes all the way under the water. That's a sign of death and burial. But then when they come up out of the water, and whenever I baptize someone, I always promise them that I will pull them back up. Because the, the symbolism and the sign is that rising to a new purified life in Christ. The dead, the, the, the sinful nature is put to death and buried. A new creature is raised to life in Christ. So these disciples in Ephesus only had half of the story. They had repented but had not understood the newness of life and the transformation that comes through faith in Jesus. 
represented by and pointed to by baptism into his name. So John's baptism was a baptism of expectation, but baptism into the name of Jesus is a baptism of fulfillment. He's already here. So perhaps one way we can understand this is that these 12 disciples in in Ephesus, their Christianity was pre-Pentecost. To the point of their knowledge and understanding, they had believed, but they hadn't received the full gospel. So Paul baptizes them in the name of Jesus, and immediately following, they receive the Holy Spirit. And their infilling of the Holy Spirit is testified to by signs that we've become somewhat accustomed to in Acts, speaking in tongues and prophecy. And you remember I told you that Luke emphasizes that every time there's a, a, the gospel advances into a new territory or a new region. And that's what's happening here in Ephesus. It's interesting that there are 12 disciples, the same number of the 12 apostles. There's important symbolism in that number. Because again, the gospel is making, it is breaching a new frontier. These, Ephesus is going to become the center of evangelism for the entire region and the entire area. And we're about to see that in a moment. So it is the Holy Spirit who confirms and seals the salvation of the individual. He is the one who comes to live inside a new believer. And it's through him that the life of Christ is lived in and through the people of God. Paul also writes a letter to this church in Ephesus, doesn't he? We know this, the letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 1, verse 13 of that letter, Paul writes this. Now remember, he's writing to these very people that we just read about. What does he write? And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. This is Paul reminding these Ephesians of how they were saved. They heard the word. They believe the word, and as they believe, the Holy Spirit enters them, and he is the seal or proof of their salvation. He's the one who guarantees it. He is the one who says the work of Christ in you will be carried on to completion. I am the guarantee of that. We have a man, uh, his name's Rogério, who works on our appliances at home anytime that they break down, a washing machine, dryer, stove, fridge, whatever. And uh, what I really like about Rogério is that he guarantees his work. And there have been several times where he's done some work on, on, on one of our machines, one of our appliances, and maybe a day or two later, even a week later, we have that same problem again, or even a different problem, but it's related to the first problem. He immediately comes back, fixes it free of charge. He guarantees his work. So if he starts that work, you know it's going to be completed. The Holy Spirit is, our, is the seal of God guaranteeing our inheritance, guaranteeing our salvation. And once he has indwelt a person, he will carry through the work of God to completion in us. He is the guarantee. That is the Holy Spirit's, one of the Holy Spirit's roles. 
The second work of the Holy Spirit we see in Ephesus is that the Holy Spirit inspires the spread of the gospel. Given that Luke begins the Ephesian account with the indwelling of the Spirit, it's clear that everything that follows is also attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit. So Paul continues to preach for three months in the Jewish synagogue. And while the text tells us that some of the Jews believed, we're also told that some became obstinate. And then Paul uses an interesting and somewhat terrifying verb. Some became obstinate and refused to believe. It's an interesting word there, isn't it? This statement brings into sharp focus the fact that belief in Christ is a choice. Belief is not something that happens to a person. Belief is something by which we engage our will and choose. These Jews chose to not believe. They refused to believe. They hardened their hearts and rejected the gospel and chose to ignore the salvation that was offered to them. Now, as it relates to those of, of you, those of us who already belong to Christ. In the opportunities that God gives us for evangelism, the opportunities that he gives us for sharing his truth and for sharing Jesus with other people, we need to remember to call people to this choice, to invite them to make a decision. It's a choice that people are empowered to make by whom? By the Holy Spirit. I know that the issue of, of the hardening of the human heart is sometimes a difficult one for, for us to navigate. Particularly when we were studying Exodus, remember the, the, the person of Pharaoh and how the text says specifically that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? And that's hard for us to read because we, we read that as being unfair. God, that's unfair that you would harden someone's heart and then still hold them accountable for not surrendering to you. But I would suggest that the Holy Spirit does not harden the heart of someone who is soft and repentant and open. The picture that we're given in, in Exodus of Pharaoh is not someone who's on his knees before the Most High God saying, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And God says, no, I'm going to harden your heart. It's a picture of someone whose heart is already hard, is already resistant, is already refusing to believe, and therefore God removes his restraint and the heart becomes even harder. It's like the image that I shared with you last week of the child who is being held by their parent by the hand, but they're so determined, they're tugging and pulling and straining in a certain direction. And the parent says, no, no, no. And the child insists so long and so hard that finally the parent lets go and the child goes flying. In the same way, the Holy Spirit will not hold back a person forever whose heart is bent on rejecting the gospel. There comes a time, according to Romans 1, where God gives a person over to their own sinful desires. Where God says, okay, if that's, the, that's what you want, I give you over. Go. 
So that's one side of the work of the Holy Spirit in evangelism. But now, let's look at the other side of the story. While there are those who grow obstinate and refuse the gospel, look what the Holy Spirit enables in the entire region. So after those three months in the synagogue, Paul spends two years living, preaching, and teaching in Ephesus. And over the course of those two years, Luke tells us that all the Jews and Greeks living in Asia heard the gospel. That's absolutely remarkable. Because this is before mass media. It's before Twitter. It's before Facebook. It's before cable TV news. It's before any modern kind of communication. So how is it possible that the gospel spreads through the whole region of Asia All the people had heard it in just two years. There's one explanation, and that is the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit empowering his church, his people, to share the gospel. On Christmas Eve, when we have our uh, candlelight service in here, we start by just lighting one candle, the Christ candle. And then we usually have the children come up and light their candles, and then they walk down the aisles, and as they go, they light the candle of of, of the person on the end of the aisle. And this is a symbol, it's a, it's a picture of how the spread of the gospel works. From that one candle, it spreads until everyone here in the sanctuary has a lit candle. The Holy Spirit inspires the spread of the gospel from disciple to disciple to disciple, from disciple to non-believer, and that non-believer becomes a believer, and then that believer becomes a disciple, and that disciple disciples others, and we have this this spread of the gospel that is beyond all human explanation. Because there's no way that Paul, under his own strength, could have accomplished all that. Because remember, Paul's just in Ephesus. He's not in the whole region. The Holy Spirit inspires the explosive spread of the gospel. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit reveals the power of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit reveals the power of the Godhead. Verse 11 begins with the word God. He is the subject. He's the prime actor. He's the one whose power will be on display. What's the phrase? God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Who did it? God. Who was the instrument? Paul. And there's some remarkable things that happen. It says even pieces of cloth or handkerchiefs that had touched Paul, when they were taken and touched on the sick or the demon possessed, that they were healed and the demon possessed were set free. It's interesting though in this context that we are not told that Paul practiced this particular kind of healing. Now, we're also not told that he didn't, but the, what we don't see is Paul sitting down in a house and cutting up a bunch of cloth, touching them all, and then giving them to people, or even worse, selling them to people and telling them to go and um, heal the sick or set the demon-possessed free. I remember this was a number of years ago, but late at night, watching some channel TV station in the U.S., and there was a 
person on there purporting to be a minister of the gospel who had all this huge pile of rags in front of him. And he had said he had prayed over them and that if people would send in $15, they would be, um, you know, one of these holy anointed pieces of cloth would be mailed to them and then they would be healed and they could use it to heal others and on and on and on. This is not what we see Paul doing. In fact, one, this was interesting. This is speculative, but it's interesting. In Ephesus, Paul was working as a tent maker. So there's some speculation, maybe even there were people, you know, that were standing around, like sneaking around Paul's place of work. And when Paul would, you know, go inside to get a drink of water, they would rush in and grab up any scraps of of canvas or tent making material that he had touched. And they ran out to, to heal others. But the point remains, regardless of how it happened, that God did amazing miracles through Paul in Ephesus. Now, why are they emphasized here? Because Luke has not mentioned these signs and wonders in every location that Paul visits. And we've talked about this before. There are times, certain cities where there's an emphasis on the miraculous. Others where perhaps miracles occurred, but Luke doesn't mention them. He doesn't focus on them. Why here in Ephesus then? Well, remember I told you that Ephesus was a center of sorcery. It was a center of the study and practice of the dark magic arts. So through Paul, what is the Holy Spirit doing in Ephesus? Whose power is greatest? Evil spirits? Demons, the entities behind black magic and the black arts, or the Holy Spirit of God. This is what's happening in Ephesus. Through Paul, the Holy Spirit is revealing the power of God over and above all other authorities, all other entities, all other powers. See, the Ephesians were already used to seeing some form of supernatural powers through evil. Apparently, the supernatural wasn't astonishing to them, as it might be to us if we were to witness something like this today. And so God in Ephesus shows that his power is above and beyond the supernatural powers of evil. He is supreme. God the Holy Spirit is the revealer of divine power in and through the church against evil, and the satanic. Let's move on to the fourth act of the Holy Spirit in Ephesus. This statement is longer and a little more complicated, so I'll repeat it a couple times. The Holy Spirit turns even the acts of Satan to the purposes of God. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit turns even the acts of Satan to the purposes of God. Again, remember the context? Ephesus, a city known for its magic arts, its supernatural experiences. So the idea of people dealing with evil spirits and even casting them out was not odd or uncommon. But what was odd and uncommon was the result when these seven sons of Siva, and we don't know much about Siva, he's just listed as a Jewish chief priest, His seven sons tried to use Jesus' name and even Paul's name in order to cast demons out of 
a, a possessed man. So what's happened is they have been watching and they've been seeing God's remarkable power on display through Paul. And they're like, we want some of that. We're going to get in on this. So let's be clear. Uh, we read the result. The demon says, uh, I know Jesus. And I've heard about Paul. Who are you? And then this single man, of course, possessed by the demon, jumps on these seven men and beats them all to a pulp. And they run away bleeding and naked. Now let's be clear about what these seven brothers were doing. They wanted the power of God without the relationship, without the responsibility, and without the repentance. In the 1970s, Burger King had an ad campaign in the United States. And the, the catchphrase of this ad campaign was, have it your way. And this week, I actually watched some old commercials from the 70s of Burger Kings. They're, by our standards today, they're, they're terribly cheesy and ineffective. But the whole point is, you can have it your way. So a family comes in to Burger King, and they order. They're all singing the order, which is also a little awkward. So the family sings their two Whoppers and two Junior Whoppers and whatever. And then the woman behind, who's taking their order, um, who looks far more glamorous than any Burger King employee I've ever seen, uh, then responds in song. You can have it your way. And then they all say, oh, wait, so I don't want ketchup, and I want this. Can I have extra cheese? Can I and, and they yes, yes, you can, and there's no extra charge, no. And it's just all wonderful. Have it your way. You can pick and choose. You can mix and match. You can make the perfect Whopper to your taste. Now, that's the attitude that, that these men, and if we're honest with ourselves, that's the attitude that we often have with God. So we look at the array of everything that God is, all of his characteristics, all of his attributes, and we say, I want God my way. So I want his love. Um, I want his power. I don't want his holiness. I don't want his judgment. I don't want his, his um, righteousness. And we, we pick and choose and we try to build a God in our image. One that will give us what we want. And do you see the result when the, the sons of Siva try this? See, they do not have a relationship with God. They are not his sons. They have not repented and come to him in repentance. And they do not understand the responsibility of living as a son of the Most High God. But they want the power. They see the power. Is this the first time we've seen an example of this? No. Remember, remember Simon the sorcerer who tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from Peter and John? So this is not a new experience in Acts. But notice how dangerous it is to put together a God in our own image, a God that meets our requirements with which we are comfortable and then going out imagining that we are under the protection of this non-existent God. Which is what happens to these seven sons of Siva. They think, we've got the name of Jesus. We've seen what Paul does in the name of Jesus. So let's go. And they're not protected. It's dangerous. 
It's dangerous and foolish to have that kind of attitude toward God. So we do not and cannot tailor the Holy Spirit to our preferences. We can't have God our way. We have God his way or not at all. We submit and surrender ourselves to him, but we do not dictate to him what he may and may not do. Now let's look at the result of this whole event. As we see the power of the Holy Spirit turning even the acts of Satan to the purposes of God. So in beating up the seven sons of Siva, in making them run away bloody and wailing, I imagine, this demonic presence ends up renewing the fear of the Lord in the entire city among all the Jews and Greeks. So in a way, it's as though Satan beat himself up. Because the result is the glory of God and the fear of the Lord. Who does that? The Holy Spirit does it. The people realized not only the power of God, but they realized the holiness in the name of Jesus at the same time. It's not a name that should be bandied about or mentioned or used with banality. It's not a name that should be taken in vain as the Old Testament commandment uses it. It's not also a magic charm that we simply utter and all of our problems go away. It's not a name that we control or that we can use to accomplish our own plans. May we too realize the holiness and power of the name of Jesus. And may the Holy Spirit work in us the fear of the Lord. You see, the demonic presence wanted to terrify people. But, what, but because of the work of the Spirit, even what Satan was trying to do turned it around to the glory of God and the fear of the Lord. Which brings us to our final act of the Spirit here in Ephesus. The Holy Spirit purifies the people of God. The Holy Spirit purifies the people of God. As a result of the growth of the fear of the Lord, the Holy Spirit starts purifying these Ephesian believers. How did this happen? Two ways. First of all, through confession. What do we read here? Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. So these are people who had already believed. So there had already been some repentance before the Lord, but now they are confessing openly to their sisters and brothers in Christ. First of all, confession. But that confession is followed by a specific action. And that action is the destruction of idolatrous stuff. Okay? Possessions. Things. Items. That for the Ephesians were associated with idolatry. And they came and they destroyed those. Now, in Ephesus, what was the primary thing being destroyed? Their books and scrolls of magic and sorcery. And you know, there have been uh, books today, the actual physical book is not that valuable, right? So it, it, it seems odd to us maybe, but to them, a scroll was incredibly expensive and valuable because it was so hard and took such effort to make and of course had to be copied by hand. But even the process of making the papyrus or making the vellum, if it were on leather, was expensive and, and time demanding. Look at the value of the scrolls that were burned. 
50,000 drachmas. And if you look down below, you see that one drachma was about one day's wage. So being the math genius that I am, I pulled out my calculator. 50,000 divided by 365. That's almost 137 years of income. But because these believers were so overcome with the fear of the Lord, the holiness of God, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they wanted to purify themselves of every influence of idolatry. And they burned them. Nothing is more precious than the purity of God ministered to his people through his spirit. I've shared with you, it's been a while, but I've shared with you before that I had an experience, not to the same degree as as the Ephesians, but similar when I was in, in university and college. And the only way I can describe it is that God brought a revival by his spirit to our campus. It started in a, in a relatively small meeting of a few hundred people one Sunday evening, and it grew over the course of the week um, till each evening there were about 1,500 people attending. And it was just, it began with people confessing sin, just openly and publicly. And the first couple nights that this went on, I remember watching and thinking, I've seen people stand in line for hours at Disneyland or Disney World or other amusement parks. I've seen people stand in line for entertainment. I've never seen people stand in line for two hours to repent and confess sin. Never seen that. I saw that. I was one of those people waiting in the lines. The third... I don't know, I think it was the third night of these meetings where these had not been planned. They were spontaneous. The third night, one of the first people that stood up to confess had um, a big stack of CDs. Now, I know some of you younger people don't know what a CD is, but ask your parents. It's the forerunner of an MP3, okay? You probably don't even know what an MP3 is anymore. I'm sure we've moved beyond that now. But... um, and the guy said, this, the, these CDs, I said, I know for me, are an idol. They are an idol in my life, and they are something that keeps me from Jesus. And so he, he just put them on the stage of that chapel. So over the course of the next few days, this pile grew and grew and grew. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just CDs. It was um, drugs of every kind, alcohol, um, even other items that perhaps for some people would not be idolatrous, but because of what people associated them with, um, for them were an issue, were stacked there, immodest clothing, um, pornography, you name it. I mean, just, it was a huge pile. Two friends of mine on the last day when all, when God brought this all to an end and there was nobody else left in line to repent and confess and we were just celebrating and worshiping and rejoicing after it was all over, the two of them loaded all this stuff into the back of a pickup truck to take it to the town dump and I remember them telling me later, we're driving along and we're thinking, what do we do if we get pulled over by a policeman? So it's like, drive very slowly and don't break any traffic laws. Because how do we explain all the illegal drugs back there? You know, the cocaine and the heroin and the crack and everything else. We're taking it to the dump officer, really. We're going to go throw it away. Um, 
There have been um, instances here at Calvary. Uh, most of you are aware of this room back there we call the fireside room. Why do we call it the fireside room? Well, it has a fireplace in it. And in the long, long, long distant past, um, not before but shortly after Christ, um, there were times where uh, Sunday evening services would be held back there and a fire would be lit during it and it gave kind of a campground feeling. But um, in more recent time, that fireplace has been used to burn um, idols, things associated with idolatry, um, books, um, that materials that people had that they felt were keeping them from the Lord or that had a, a dark um, demonic past for them. Because when, when the Holy Spirit purifies the people of God, he purifies us from the inside out. It's not just inside, but it's also external. It doesn't start external, but it ends external. Um, humanity does it the opposite way, right? We start on the outside and try to work our way in. The Holy Spirit starts on the inside, so he starts with a confession. And then from the heart, it moves outward to our bodies and to our possessions. But this is the work of the Holy Spirit to purify the people of God. And, and there's nothing like it. There's nothing more precious than the body of God being purified by the Holy Spirit so that we can accomplish the purposes that God has for us. So along with Luke, I just want to remind us all this morning to never forget the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells the church corporately and individually. And yet, how many days go by, I want to ask you this directly, how many days go by for us where we never even remember, let alone live, the power of the Spirit of God? We're not practicing his presence. The Holy Spirit confirms and seals our salvation. The Holy Spirit inspires evangelism. He reveals the power of God. The Holy Spirit turns the works of Satan to the purposes of God. And the Holy Spirit of God purifies the people of God. And brothers and sisters, this is just some of, the, of what the Holy Spirit does. This is not everything. It's what we, we see here in Ephesus. Because the Holy Spirit is himself God. And I want to invite you to a practice, to a discipline. Each morning. Each morning, to place your hand on your heart and say, Holy Spirit, you live in me, and I surrender to your work. I invite you to do that. And along with that goes also a call to a repentance, a rep repentance of forgetfulness, of forgetting or disregarding the work of the Holy Spirit, or perhaps trying to minimize or control the Holy Spirit. Because he is God's very essence, very presence in the church. 